Well, brothers and sisters, as we are together, uh, it's good to gather on this Lord's Day for the study of God's Word and then for worship. It's wonderful to see you all. And uh, it is a privilege for us to come back to Leviticus. And this will end our series in Leviticus. Uh, word by word, we went through the entire text as of last Lord's Day. And uh, it's been such a great honor to read through and to study the book of Leviticus together. What we're going to do today is uh, look at how we connect Leviticus to the work of Christ uh, and to the flow of biblical history and the storyline of the gospel and uh, our understanding theologically of the covenants. So I think we'll have a lot of fun with that this morning. We do begin today by recognizing that uh, not with us is Kathy McGee, whose death we announced last Sunday morning. Her funeral was yesterday. John is not here today. John, you are. My goodness, there you are. God bless you. We have been praying for you. And just in the last few hours, I prayed that the Lord's assurance to you would be especially sweet and powerful. And uh, there's a powerful witness in your presence here today. So we're very, very thankful, along with members of the family and loved ones who gathered. And uh, it was a very God-honoring service yesterday as uh, we thank the Lord for the gift of Kathy McGee. And so with John here, uh, I, I want us to pray, and uh, then we'll turn to God's Word. Our Father, we come before you in the name of Christ because that is how we know to come, because Jesus Christ is our mediator and great high priest. Father, we claim that as uh, we bring before you today our uh, love and concern for the McGee family, our, uh, our joy that John is here, our sorrow that Kathy is not, our joy that even as we do grieve, we do not grieve as the world grieves, but we're able to thank you for the gift that you give us. And every single person in this room and every single person in this church, every single brother and sister in Christ, and you gave us such a precious sister in Kathy, and we will miss her. In this class, we will miss her eager face, her note-taking hands, and her just joyful heart. But Father, we commend her to you as we know she is with the Christ she so dearly loved. We pray that the fellowship of the saints right here in this room today and the encouragement of your word would uh, be sweet to John as he is on our hearts in prayer. And Father, what a privilege it is to turn to your word in seasons of joy, in seasons of sorrow, in light of the gift of birth and the reality of death. Father, until you come, you find your church studying your word. We pray you'll be honored in our so doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, if you're thinking through the book of Leviticus, the first thing you notice is that most Christians know nothing about the book of Leviticus other than perhaps it is one of the books of Moses in the Pentateuch. It is an imposing, intimidating book, and I think we've seen it for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it is entirely about the law, which is the entire point. It is the instructions. It is the law that God addressed to the Levitical priesthood and uh, uh, to the Levitical priests. The instruction has been given primarily about sacrifice, but as we see, not only about sacrifice. It comes down to holy days and, and relationships between persons in Israel, the, 
the priesthood of the Levites is a priesthood that will have very much to do with sacrifice, and the sacrifices and the offerings are so detailed. And so we saw about the various sacrifices and what was to be brought and, and, and the, the fact that the animal had to be unblemished and it could be two of these or one of those and there were grain offerings and then there of course were the offerings of live animals whose lives were sacrificed. The blood was shed as a sign of the costliness of sin as well as the declaration of the Lord's redemption. If we're looking for a theme verse from Leviticus, and, and, and that can be an artificial uh, endeavor. I mean, what's the theme verse of Romans? You've got uh, several therefores, and uh, you know, you've got these declarative verses such as Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, that could be it. But even though it's arbitrary, it is helpful to us at times to just think of a verse that seems to summarize what the book of Leviticus is all about. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways that that can become focal for us is when God declares the reality of the covenant. And, and we see that particularly in Leviticus chapter 20, where in verse 26, the Lord says to Israel, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So that's a covenant statement. That's, a, that's exactly what that is. That declares the covenant reality. There is the covenant. I am holy, therefore you must be holy, for I have set you apart. I've separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So it's an astounding passage. It's one of those focal points where this is the same kind of intimacy with which Christ will talk about the church. These are my people. These are the sheep of my pasture. This is my church. This is my flock. The personal possession language is a part of the covenant language. And uh, this was Israel's great privilege. So you can look at this a couple of ways. And, uh, you know, just, just over the last couple of days, I've had to uh, deal with a new book that's come out, and it's actually by a historian of American religious history, and uh, it's, it's from the left. It's just extremely acerbic towards conservative Christianity, but uh, he, he, he keeps pointing to the, what we exult in in the covenant language, and he keeps saying that Christians in the United States, conservative Christian evangelicals, refuse to reject the exclusivity which is found in both Testaments. Well, that, that's exactly, we can't, we can't reject anything found. I thought, well, that's an amazing acknowledgement that it's found there. But this kind of language is exactly what repels so many who want a united nations rather than a covenant. And uh, here the covenant is made with Israel. Israel is set apart, and Israel is to be holy because God's covenant nation is to reflect his own attribute of holiness. But the big question, just as you look at the Bible, and, and, and as, a, as a boy, you know, the, this became very apparent to me. I know the, the big question is all right, there's an Old Testament. 
and there's a New Testament. And the word testament there really does mean covenant. It's like will and testament. So there's an Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are a lot of bad ways this can be expressed that I, as a, as a young boy, just picked up on. The, the Old Testament is the, is the Jewish book, and the New Testament is the Christian book. Well, that offends what Christ said. In speaking of the Old Testament Scripture, saying, these are they that testify of me. And then you look at the teaching of Jesus, you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and you see that there is no understanding of the New Covenant without the Old Covenant. Now, here's another issue. People will speak about the two covenants, and of course there's a succession of covenants, but we're just talking about Israel and the church in terms of the biggest covenantal distinction. And there are those who say, look, here's the deal. God made a covenant with Israel. We'll call that covenant one. Israel was unable to be faithful to the covenant, so God came up with a better plan, covenant two. And covenant two is the Christian covenant. Well, then, you know, inquiring minds want to know, what about covenant one? Well, covenant one just went away. But there's just no easy way to explain how it just goes away. Because the Lord himself makes eternal language about the covenant that he has made. So if the Lord is making eternal promises, and some of those promises are unconditional, well, we have a problem because there is no discontinuity. And of course, that's a slander upon the very character of God. God's not sovereign if he needs plan B. God is sovereign if he intends to show his glory through a successive covenant that will completely fulfill the first on new and better promises. And that's exactly what the New Testament read carefully tells us about the old covenant, that is to say, the covenant and the covenants made with Israel. So, counterintuitively perhaps, we're going to spend most of our time thinking about Leviticus, not in Leviticus, but rather in the book of Hebrews. And I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, where we will discover how we are to understand Leviticus. Now, remember the book of Hebrews is called this simply because it is addressed to the Hebrews, but it is to Hebrew Christians. This is, this is an apostolic book inspired by the Holy Spirit. I wrote a commentary on Hebrews published several years ago, and uh, that tells you at least how important Hebrews is to me in uh, my entire theological understanding. And a part of the, uh, the purpose in writing that commentary on Hebrews was to help Christians to understand reading Hebrews in light of the Old Testament, which is the only way this book can actually be understood. So thinking of Leviticus, we are in Hebrews, and let's look at the opening verses of the book. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Okay, so Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the 
prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Now, if you have your thumb, look back to Leviticus. Over and over and over again, the opening words of Leviticus are repeated. Notice what it is. Look at the statement. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Okay, so almost countless times within Leviticus, God calls Moses out in order to speak to him, in order that he may go back to God's people, the covenant nation of Israel, and tell them what God has said. Moses is here, the prophet. The Lord is speaking to him. He speaks through the prophets. So as you look at Hebrews in many and various ways, God has spoken to his people by the prophets. Well, Leviticus is a central example of that. When we are looking at Hebrews and there's a reference back, there it is. But now he has spoken to us in a son who is prophet, priest, and king. But notice the next verse. Look at verse 3. Well, we, we, we won't skip two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Okay, did you see it? After making purification for sins. Jesus is the prophet who is also the priest. He is the prophet and he is the great high priest. And you'll notice, here's the issue, and we're about to see this made an explicit argument. In Leviticus, the priest fulfilling a temporary specific sacrificial responsibility would sacrifice an animal. Jesus simply made purification for sin. Whose blood? His blood. Okay. That's Hebrews 1. Now we move over to Hebrews 4. Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, two things there just very quickly. Notice Jesus is the great high priest. He's identified as that already. And he's, he's the prophet. He made purification for sins. He's also the great high priest. And, and now you have that defined. You have a title, the great high priest. And so there was a high priest, but now we have a great high priest. There are a succession of priests. There is even a succession of high priests. But there's one and only one great high priest. Oh, and by the way, the incarnation is made extremely clear and beautifully defined 
when we're told that he is one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet like the animal absolutely qualified for sacrifice, yet without sin. No blemish. Perfect. So we're just four chapters in. We have a great high priest. And then as you follow through, there's, there's of course, so much more about what it means for Jesus to be the great high priest. By the time we get to chapter 7, Jesus is compared to Melchizedek. Well, what about the Levitical priesthood? Well, well, look at verse 11. Interesting you asked that question. The Holy Spirit thought you might ask that question. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you were wondering, how does all this tie to the Levitical priesthood? The Holy Spirit answers us that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. That's a good thing to know. The first covenant, that is to say, the covenant with Israel, the covenant with Abraham, let's just say in the general term of the Old Testament, for summary purposes, we're just going to call it the Old Covenant, the covenant of old, as it's referred to. It was imperfect. Well, let's think about that for a moment. How, how is it imperfect? I mean, after all, God made the covenant, so, but this is God declaring the first covenant to be imperfect. In what sense, then, is it imperfect? Well, just think of this. What were its promises? Because later we're going to be told the new covenant was enacted on better promises. So what was the promise to Israel? National identity, specific covenant relationship. In the context of this covenant was offered the forgiveness of sins but not forever. Not forever. Same people who brought a sacrifice for their sins one week would have to bring it back the next. And we know our nature, we know that's true. The blood of those animals sufficed to hold back the judgment and the wrath of God for a while, but not for eternity. The new covenant is enacted on new and better promises precisely because it promises that our sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And God's forgiveness of sins and the gift of life everlasting is unchangeable and unshakable. That's a better covenant with better promises. There's a new priest. So Jesus here is the animal sacrifice amplified exponentially beyond our imagination into the sacrifice of the very Son of God. But he's also the priest who performs the ceremony. Now you say, wait just a minute. This is pretty complicated biblical theology because 
the descent of Jesus is really important. The descent, the genealogy of Jesus, of course, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, but the genealogy, as the Bible traces it, particularly through Mary and, and through the line, wh whose son is he? Is he the son of the Levites? No, he's David's son. He's David's son. It's also tracked through Joseph, just in terms of Joseph's family lineage. And so, as you look at this, you recognize that it is very clear that Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is not of the Levitical class. He is not a Levitical priest. So, his priesthood has to be explained otherwise. It is said right here in the book of Hebrews, his priesthood was not by bodily descent. And so, Here's another thing. In other words, is there some hint in the Old Testament that salvation is going to come by a priest outside of the priestly caste? I mean, because just understand that given Israel's structure, that was almost impossible to understand. <clears throat> how, could, how could salvation come? How could the ultimate priestly ministry come by someone who isn't a priest according to bodily descent? And the answer, just looking back to the Old Testament, was the sign or the type of Melchizedek. And uh, so, like, Melchizedek was just a hint of the fact that God would intervene to save by means of an unexpected priesthood. The same is true with Jesus, but though he was unexpected, he was not unannounced. Well, as we continue looking in the book of Hebrews, Chapter 8 tells us so much about what it means uh, for Jesus Christ to be this, this high priest and for his covenant to be a better covenant. But the last verses of chapter 7 lead in. And so even as you look at verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And, and then in chapter 7, the final paragraph gives us a, an explicit argument. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Interesting thing there, by the way, you see the word of the oath, that's, a, that's another way of saying covenant. Uh, his oath, his covenant, his blood redeems me from the whelming flood. Uh, this is the oath and the covenant. This is it. It's a good thing that the Bible's given us another word for it. It helps us to understand an oath. God made an oath. And uh, there it is. Chapter 8. Again, Jesus accomplishes a better covenant. He is a high priest who is the great high priest. In verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. That includes the Levitical, particularly. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, verse 7 is crucial. 
And verse 7 is so crucial because if you or I said what is in verse 7 without biblical authority, it might well be blasphemy. But God says this by the Holy Spirit of His own first covenant. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the covenant that we've been studying particularly in the demonstration of the law in Leviticus, was not faultless. By the way, we already had signs of that in Leviticus. Because even when it came to, say, Aaron and his sons, we already have a problem. Uh, when it came to the reality of this Levitical priesthood, we, we already have a problem. Uh, when it comes to the priesthood of ironic descent, you know, clearly we, we, we already have a problem. I know this is probably the quintessential Baptist statement, but I thank God I need no earthly priest. I thank God I need no earthly priest because I wouldn't trust one. I wouldn't trust one. How would I know the inclination of the heart of that priest? And so even in those churches that do have a sacerdotal ministry, a priestly ministry, they have to operate on something like ex opere operato, which means it's by the operation of the thing, meaning the sacrament. That's an acknowledgement of the fact you can't trust a priest even to be giving adequate attention to it. I mean, life and death, the forgiveness of sins, eternal destiny is at stake, and you're trusting this guy who could have been deep into the sacramental wine last night? Uh, who knows what sin he has committed or is planning to commit after this Mass? And so you can't make it all on this priesthood as if the efficacy of the sacrament is, is due to the priest, because after all, as human beings, it's not just that we sin by sins of commission, we also sin by sins of omission, things we fail to do, and we're also just human. I mean, for one thing, you know, again, one of my mottos is, if you're male, you have ADHD. That's just the way it works. You know, someone says, well, this boy looks like he's distracted. Well, they all are. That's the way it works. So's dad, by the way, uh, easily distracted. That's part of what part of becoming a man means. You, you focus as you, you learn to isolate out distractions and make an absolute focus. And, you know, anyone who thinks any man has accomplished that fully has never been one. It's like, this is the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. I get to teach the book of Leviticus. We're looking here at Hebrews. There goes a butterfly. It's just the way it works. That, that's just the way it works. Okay, we, we, we can't be saved by a priest who is distracted. We can't be saved by the mediation of a priest who brings his sin. No, Jesus, the great high priest, is not like the priests of old. And that includes the priests of Israel. But notice this. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come. That's the new covenant. Then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of his creation. So this is speaking of the tabernacle as a heavenly tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In some ways, this is the climactic passage. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And uh, where's the tabernacle? Now, now, remember, at times in Leviticus, God calls uh, Moses out of the tabernacle so that, that he may speak to him and he may come back and speak. And then there's a lot of reference to what must go on in the tabernacle, right down to exactly how and where and under what circumstances and by whom the sacrifices are to be performed. But Jesus appeared in the tabernacle. But it's not the tabernacle made with human hands. And so in the book of Hebrews, we have revelation, knowledge, entree into knowing something that was hinted about in the old and is now confirmed in Hebrews. There's a heavenly tabernacle. It is God's dwelling place. In, in the heavenly tabernacle, God himself executes justice and righteousness according to his eternal, unchanging, perfect character. The atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross was such that he was himself sacrificed as the great high priest. And at the same time, as the great high priest, he entered that perfect, eternal, heavenly tabernacle and presented blood the way it was presented by the earthly priest in the accordance with the sacrifice. And in the heavenly tabernacle accomplished for us by his own blood, eternal redemption. Now that phrase eternal redemption is a Another complete game changer. Now, it's not that we're surprised by it at this point. It's just that there's the concise statement of it, and it means two things. It means that the new covenant enacted on new and better promises promises eternal redemption, and that means that the old covenant did not promise eternal redemption. Now, I've been asked by many, many, including many preachers, how's it been going in Leviticus? And uh, I'll simply tell you that uh, this, is a, this, is an, this is a test. We've referenced this before, but Leviticus is a test of just how much you believe in expository 
preaching and teaching. It, it really is a test because you're going to have sections that no one would choose. Just saying with a, we're going to choose a text to preach today, you would never choose many texts in Leviticus. I dare say that one of the realities of expository preaching, and maybe you haven't thought of this and maybe you have, but one of the wonders of expository preaching is what you see in this room right now. You look in this room right now, and here are a lot of Christians who are gathered here for the study of God's Word. There may be some unbelievers who have come in, and we are thrilled that you are here to hear the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Uh, there are a lot of students who are here who are college and seminary students. There are a lot of business people who are here, married couples who are here, single people who are here, all kinds of people are here. There are children in this room, and there are older people in this room. And we all learn together about bodily secretions we never thought we would mention out loud in church, and some sins that we never expected to be explained or would necessarily require to be explained. And we have seen some really grotesque stuff. We have. We've also been given some very good advice, like not eating crawling things. But you look at that and you recognize Leviticus is deep in mess because it is about law to restrain sin. And the liturgical law of Israel, the priestly law, that would point to the forgiveness of sins for a time that must, as a sacrifice, be recurring over and over again. We get to the book of Hebrews, and when we understand this is a new covenant enacted on new and better promises, it's not just what's in it, in some sense, it's what's not. And this gets to some confusion in the Christian church, in the Christian world. So what about all the rest that's not recapitulated here? What, what, what about all that? What about, what about some of the law addressed to Israel? What about laws related to diet and laws related to fabrics and laws related to so many other things? What do we do with that? Well, we understand that, I, I want to say this as carefully as I can say it. We must understand that there are reasons for some of those regulations in the Old Covenant, in the Levitical law, that we do not understand and evidently are not to understand, okay? Because, first of all, it's God's sovereign wisdom that establishes these laws that are so righteous and perfect. We don't know the reason why some of those laws were given. Some of the dietary laws actually make incredible even uh, advanced dietary sense. Some of them don't, not in the sense that they violate it, but there's no particular reason why. No, no dietician says, okay, there's a clear rationale as to why that might be so. And so at that point you say, well, that's just 
that's just a sign of how onerous the law was made. And the Apostle Paul uses that language. The, Paul, the, the old covenant law was made hard. It was made hard. It was made really, really hard because, for instance, as we saw in the sacrificial system, Israel spent an enormous amount of its labor either getting ready for a sacrifice or needing a sacrifice or performing a sacrifice. And, and you given all the things that were given in terms of the penalties of the law, how long someone had to sit outside a tent, how someone had to do this, I, it's a wonder they ate. And, and the law was meant to be that way. And they were to wear the law on their body. Men were, to, men were to wear the law on their body. And they were to have the law on the, on the doorpost of their homes. The law was an onerous thing. It was a covenant thing. It was a heavy thing. The Apostle Paul will say that the law was a heavy, heavy thing. So heavy that none of us could fulfill it. Well... This new covenant acted on new and better promises. It doesn't cancel the old covenant. It's not that it's a new and better idea. This is where we really have to understand this very well. That's an insult to, to both covenants. The right way to look at this is promise and fulfillment. And that's the language used in Scripture. It's even the language used in the Gospels about the crucifixion of Christ. This is to fulfill. And, of course, that's extended to the entire ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry and his current ministry and his future ministry. This new and better covenant enacted on new and better promises is a covenant that doesn't cancel, nullify, or replace, it fulfills. Okay, now that radically changes things in a way that I think a lot of Baptists and evangelicals never think about. So where is the old covenant now? Where is it now? If it wasn't canceled because God made an eternal covenant, it's not canceled, then where is it? It's not in the synagogue. It's not in the ancient Near East, not right now as you're looking to where that covenant is. Okay, well, you ask that question, where is the old covenant? It is in Christ. In other words, Christ has fulfilled it. He is the mediator of a new covenant and enacted on new and better promises, but he himself is the fulfillment of the covenant of old. It's not just what he did, it is who he is. Now, looking to eschatology, and as you look to the New Testament, that also means, and I'm making very clear my own understanding of these issues at this time, there are those who would see such things differently, but I believe, for example, that the territorial promises that were given to Israel are now a part of the mission of Christ. And I believe they will be realized to the glory of God to demonstrate the fulfillment of the promises. Now, how exactly all these things are tied together? We have to have some humility. 
because we are not given any particular uh, advance word. In fact, we're told we're not given any particular advance word about how exactly all these things will happen. But it's really important to us that you recognize that the Old Covenant has passed away, not in the sense that it now is forever gone, because that can't happen to any of the covenants God makes. But those covenants are now in Christ. They are in Christ's work and perfectly fulfilled in Him. All right, very quickly. What makes Christ's sacrifice different? Chapter 10 makes very clear what makes Christ's ministry different, His sacrifice different. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have to bring this to an end, but you ask, where is the covenant of old? It is in Christ. And you ask, where is Leviticus? It's in the New Testament. And and where is the sacrifice? The sacrifice is Christ. Where's the priesthood? The priesthood is Christ, the great high priest. Where's the mediator? The mediator is Christ. Where's the prophet? The prophet is Christ. And, of course, the New Testament tells us to complete our understanding. Where is the king? The king is Christ, prophet and priest and king. I want to thank you for uh, studying Leviticus together and giving me the honor of studying and teaching with you. I hope you have found great spiritual encouragement from Leviticus, but not total satisfaction Brothers and sisters, if you're satisfied with Leviticus, you're in the wrong place. We are here because Leviticus drives us to Christ. And Christ is the great high priest. And it is a great high priest we need. The covenant of old was a covenant of promise. But the covenant we need is a covenant enacted on new and better promises a new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ our Lord. It just so happens that is who he is and what he did. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you answer our questions even about how to read the Bible. So, Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds, our spirits, so that we receive more than we know by studying your word because your word's doing a work in us that we don't even detect until we see the signs of it father sanctify us by your word in christ we pray to the glory of your everlasting name amen amen god bless you we'll see you lord willing next lord's day